And one of our sites, user wanted to do snow storage to store snow because when they shovel or they sweep the streets, some of that snow's got to go somewhere. Got to go somewhere, <laughs> man. Welcome to the Ford Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between $15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partnerships for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down from New York. Uh, when people hear iOS, they think of their iPhone. But when you think of iOS, you think of something probably totally different. So let's kind of start with what is iOS at the high level? Like, how do you think about it? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, iOS is a funny uh, acronym. I think actually, as an industry, there, there's a couple of competing acronyms. Uh, but at its core, really, iOS stands for industrial outdoor storage and effectively is uh, like low coverage industrial land. So yards, lay down yards, container storage typically comprised of, you know, 15% or less building coverage, let's say, and where sort of the primary value in the property is comes with the outside storage. Um, and I would say it's a, it's a larger... <laughs> A pool of these assets than I think most people think they're the types of things that you drive by on highways and they sort of blend into the background. We think it's it's a pretty large space, actually. Yeah. How does a gentleman like yourself, you probably didn't grow up thinking this is what I'm going to uh, spend a lot of my career on. How did you actually get into this asset class? Because it's relatively new and I know we're going to talk about how it's emerging, but how did you get here? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It, it is funny. I do joke about that a lot with my wife. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Uh, so originally, I still do work at, we have a firm called Abingdon Square Partners, which is based in, in New York. And we had been working in the self-storage space, actually ground up self-storage. Uh, and through that journey, you know, you're looking for uh, industrial zoned land basically you know uh, to build self-storage and through you know looking for these sites in urban core locations typically uh, we were seeing the need for you know renting this land uh, you know in New York it was to oftentimes fleet parking truck parking operators we saw this sort of explosion in demand and rents and uh, you know we just saw that on the micro level in New York uh, and then so, so we knew that that was happening there uh, we heard of, you know, some other groups that were, you know, pursuing this as a discrete strategy. And we, this would have been the spring of 21. Uh, we did a deep dive, spent a couple weeks, mapped out what we knew about the space, called a bun on a bunch of deals, talked to a bunch of brokers and came away very bullish on the opportunity. You know, we saw a space that was very fragmented, that was very large. Um, you know, we we're sizing this at 
at a couple hundred billion dollar market in the U.S., which uh, is actually not too far off from the self-storage market. Mm. And if you think about, you know, where the self-storage market is at now compared to where, you know, outside storage is really nascent asset class, we just thought that there is a really interesting opportunity to potentially get in on the early stages of what we think is maybe it's called the last frontier of industrial, you know, real estate asset classes. And and to be fair, like, you know, we've been buying industrial since 2016. We've always had some, you know, yard space to the side. You always hear of kind of yard space. But from your perspective, when did this start kind of formalizing as its own asset class? And has this been something that's been being traded a lot in, call it, the previous decades? Or is this really kind of here, kind of, really started in COVID is when it really started popping. Like if you had a timeline, how has this been maturing as an asset class? It's a good question. Uh, having now traveled around the country a bunch and talked to a lot of other operators, it's been around for a while. Uh, it's had different names. Some groups started doing this 10 years ago, um, other groups more recently, but certainly I think it was a confluence of, of a bunch of factors. Uh, um, you know, I think definitely there's some e-commerce tailwind. So you saw really extreme rent spikes in certain submarkets. Yeah. You were talking, you know, for outside storage and, and again, just certain submarkets, rents doubling in a year. Um, and when you see that sort of extreme, you know, rent movement, that's going to draw the attention of, uh, you know, a lot of investors. Um, and I, I don't know, I think it, it's sometimes it just takes a while for for something to, to coalesce. I think some people that were early, it's hard to get capital on board with the idea and it's sort of this virtuous or unvirtuous circle sometimes to, to get people interested in a space and sort of brick by brick. And I, yeah, I, I honestly see it continuing on for another five to 10 years like this. And do the capital markets, uh, <clears throat> and we can talk about, y'all have a, a joint venture with you know, the largest, one of the largest banks in the world, JP Morgan, but I'm assuming that's safe to say that the capital markets now recognize this as a, as a lendable, investable asset class. There's nobody asking questions. Um, it's kind of maturing in the capital markets or? Yes what? and no. Okay. Yes and no. I mean, put in perspective, it, you know, even when we started this 18 months ago, we couldn't even agree on a name for what it was. Um, so, you know, things are moving pretty quickly. It's both. I think uh, institutional investors are very interested in the space, are increasingly getting educated on the space. Uh, lenders are trailing the equity investors slightly, uh, naturally. Yeah. Um, but that said, it, there's a lot of appetite to put money into the space, but also you have to educate people because for most groups, entering, it's going to be their first time entering the space. So there's always just uh, more questions initially. But yes, we see more of that happening. And is it fair to say this is supply constrained? Like, especially as we talk about like the infill of these major cities, nobody's going out and creating industrial outdoor storage from nothing today. These are legacy assets or is there new product coming to the infill of these major cities? I think you're right. So it depends, right? Yes. So that's sort of one of our major theses at our firm is we focus on urban infill iOS sites because, right. uh, you know, the barriers to entry, very supply uh, constrained, you know, cities aren't giving new 
uh, heavy industrial zoning to this, you know, in infill locations. And then you also have this development boom. So for every warehouse that's built, that's actually in the middle of a city. It's a double whammy. You're taking iOS supply off the market and you're creating more that much more demand actually for outside storage. And you see developers, you know, to make their deals pencil are actually maxing out coverage, right? So, you know, maybe like a, the best layout for a warehouse might be a 33, 35% coverage. But if you're building near a center of Philadelphia or Chicago or Dallas, you're trying to hit 45, 50% coverage. And then that means there's some excess like trailer storage that has to go somewhere yep. and it has to be close by. Yeah. And so you really see this, you know, discrete, uh, you know, that sort of, yeah, it's interesting dynamic. And then also I would say, um, to your point there, there is some new product that's coming online, but it's typically more in tertiary markets further out. Um, and we, we, we sort of stay away from, from those sites. You, you could probably get a higher yield, you know, playing in that space, but you know, for us, it's, it's not really our strategy. And to have an iOS site, does it already, does it just have to be zoned industrial? Like, let's just say there is some infill land in zoned industrial, or are there more, and maybe it's city by city, but are there certain requirements that from a zoning and usability standpoint that a site must have different than just pure industrial zoning? Yeah, it is city by city. Um, we think of there's a, a, a menu of potential uses that we consider iOS uses. We sort of came up with a list of like eight to 10. And some, you know, some cities might allow five, some zoning might allow five of the 10, some zoning might allow all of the 10, some might only allow two or three. And then there might be overlay situations where, you know, yes, you can do this use, but you have to, and then there's some sort of capital improvements, you know, whether it's paving or, you know, fencing or building a building. So it totally depends. Um, you really have to get granular with the, the zoning and all the municipalities to, to understand it. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important, but if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREDaily.com. That's CREDaily.com. Let's just like talk deals for a little bit. Like let's, I, I have a, a broad question in my notes and we can get more granular as we go, but like, I just want to describe, uh, I want you to describe a couple, we don't have to talk about specific deals in your portfolio, but just what makes a great deal for y'all or what makes a great iOS site. And then I want to kind of move to like what tenants and users are thinking when they're going to look at these sites. But if you're going into a market, what are you like really trying to drill down on? Yeah, I think in some ways it's different, but it, at its core, it's honestly not that different than how you would underwrite a site would be my guess. Okay. You're, you're looking at, at your, your basis, you're going in cap rate, it, to the extent there is going in income, and then you're underwriting a, a market rent and any capital improvements needed to get, you know, to get that market rent. And then you're ending up at a stabilized, 
you know, un untrended yield on cost, right? And, yeah. and at year three or five or seven, whatever it is, and you model around that. So it, in some ways, it's actually just like you would underwrite any other real estate asset. Okay, you said CapEx. What type of CapEx goes into like outdoor storage that y'all might be providing that's not already there? And I'm assuming most of what you're buying, uh, maybe I could be wrong here, already has a tenant or action on the site. You're not buying just raw land and then trying to get activity. What y'all are buying is existing locations that already have activity. That's correct. Okay. Initially, we actually did buy um, one or two development sites in, in, in Dallas. Okay. Um, and we feel good about those. But yeah, I'd say like 95% of our portfolio are, are sort of active sites. So it could be as simple as, uh, you know, regrading yeah, you know, um, there could be potholes, that sort of thing. Uh, it could be repairing fencing, building a small structure, even if it's just it's a little office, uh, adding lighting. Um, definitely, I think tenants care about like security for sure, access. So whether it's paving a drive aisle, is it like an entry to this space? Um, it sort of depends on the tenant, but you know that it's not a ton of capex, but it's it's a little more work than than you might think from the outside. And are most of these sites that you're buying multi-tenant, single-tenant? Do they have multi-uses? Like, how are that most of them occupied? We, as a firm, aim for as few tenants as possible per site. So on a larger site, you might end up with three or four tenants. If you have a 30-acre site, you might have three or four tenants. Okay. Um, but we we prefer sites that accommodate you know one to three tenants. Um, that's just our our program. But there are sites, and we see them all the time that are really chopped up with month to month, you know, truck parking users, and uh, we we try to stay away from those. They're just so operationally in intensive, and it doesn't really fit with our program. Yeah. But they do exist, and yeah. Well, let's talk about operations for just a little bit. You know, if we buy a building, we have property management, we have tenants, we collect rent, we provide, you know, maintenance and, and everything else. When y'all buy a site, what level of activity are you are you hiring a manager? Like, are there managers for this stuff? Are y'all managing it? How does that work? Yeah, we uh, we're in the process, actually, of building out. We're going to have property management um, fully integrated, vertically integrated. Uh, but really because of the nature of how we lease these sites to really just one or two tenants, oftentimes on, on longer term, ideally triple net leases, it, it's really not too management intensive. Once you get the site stood up, it's, you fenced it, you light it, you give them the keys and it's, you know, they're five acres to operate as they see fit. So it's not too management intensive, actually. Is there a point where there's there's too many, uh, the coverage is too much, like there's too much uh, physical structures to not be considered iOS anymore. Like what is that that level where you no longer kind of put it in this category? We sort of consider it as where really the most value is in the land. So if you're quoting rents on a per building square foot, it's probably more just like traditional low coverage industrial. But if, the val if more of the value in the site is in the land, then we consider that. <clears throat> Like I, so it's a little qualitative, but that's sort of how we think about. It. So some of our sites are twenty plus percent coverage, but uh, you know the land is is such a key part of of the operation of the site. And how are these tenants? How do these tenants find y'all? Um, 
Like if you go on CoStar, you go on LoopNet, you're not just necessarily seeing all these like outdoor storage listings. Like how does that market work? Is that still developing? How do tenants find you? Totally still still developing. It's part of what made us excited about the spaces. There is no CoStar for iOS yep. at the moment. Uh, yeah. Maybe that'll change at some point. But for right now, it's very hard to find. Uh, you know, there's no category for it. Correct. So that said, the brokerage community is getting more fluent on the space. They're getting more involved. Sometimes it's also just direct client or sorry, tenant outreach. Uh, we have a you know a couple of full-time leasing people on our team, and and so they work in in Congress with the brokers in these markets to to find tenants. Um, but yeah, it's an evolving space for sure. And like you said earlier, a lot of the leases being signed in this space, long-term leases, or is it Amazon coming to y'all saying we need seasonal parking for the holiday rush? All of the above. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, we we've had the the big guys that say, hey, we need this space, but for three months. Our preference is to sign longer term leases. Um, so we typically look at three to seven years on uh, on our leases. Um, and it depends on the credit quality, maybe may longer. But yeah, some some people want want short term leases, but we we prefer the the longer term. Yeah, one thing you know, we do Class B industrial. A lot of the you know you call it tenants sub ten thousand feet. They're not being repped in the market. I'm assuming when you think of tenants, you have your majors. Like they're probably easier to get in touch with easier to figure out if they need space. Are y'all leasing to non-credit tenants? And is there a different process they're going through to find y'all? Are they just driving around looking for a yard? And, and I mean, it's, it's kind of the Wild West in a lot of this stuff. It is. It's funny you, you said, it almost feels like the Wild West and the Gold Rush all like wrapped up in one right yeah. now. Um, yeah, we, we do lease to, to non-credit tenants. I mean, actually, I, I almost think of a great example is for a while there last year, uh, Carvana was running around um, leasing up anything <laughs> in sight, paying top dollar. Yep. You know, well, they're publicly traded. They're going to pay like the highest rent. And in some ways, we'd rather have the the regional, you know, uh, roofing company that's had 30 years of track record and is deeply entrenched. And it's really a it's a buzzword, but it's true that's, that the site would be mission critical to, yeah. to what they're doing. So it's it's a blend, right? We're we're looking for for tenants that we we think have a good operating track record, and if they're credit, that's even better. Are there any amenities for these tenants? Like anything that comes to mind? I mean, somebody, some people sit in. I'm reading things like, um, like uh, shops, truck washes, pavement versus crushed gravel, fencing, lighting. Like, can you just maybe expand on that just a little bit? Totally. It it depends on the tenant. Like okay. there's a big universe of, of tenants out there and they each have little specific requirements. I think you've touched on all of them. Okay. Uh so yeah, I mean, oftentimes it's just a building, a yeah. shop, uh, an office, and we can do that. Um, sometimes it is paving, um, or even just asphalting. Uh, you know, there's different levels of crushed rock finish, which yeah. Again, a couple of years ago, I didn't know I would be learning about this stuff. But uh, yeah, it, it's actually pretty. It's it can really it just depends on the tenant, though, yeah. truthfully, like, you know. A, someone might just need to park trucks and they don't even care that the site's just dirt and someone could be Amazon and they care a lot that it's paved and lit, and, you know, and you might even need a full time security guard for those sites. Right. So it's just totally depends on the tenant are the level of crushed rock or is that 
like what what determines like how you go up the chain it's less messy it's less uh creates less moisture what what matters as you're going up the rock <laughs> crush rock scale well it's a lot of it has to do with just the depth of it, right? So how much weight it can it can you know hold on it without okay. it you know turning up, uh, and then yeah, also you know creating dust. Uh, you're trying not to create too much you know dust, especially you know cities uh, you know don't like that. Uh, your neighbors wouldn't like that. So yeah, but a lot of it just has to do with sort of the depth of it, and, and then yeah, and the quality of it as well. From a pure uh, environmental standpoint, is it easy to get one tenant off the next tenant on? Like, do you have to do a cleanup for these or is it tenant specific? Like, I know if you're changing uses, you have to do a huge cleanup. What happens if you're just changing tenants? Typically, no. Okay. Um, I mean, one of the things we really like about the space is at the end of the day, the, these are people that store things outside. Yeah. They're not typically concerned with, you know, maybe... A, you know cert certain issues around the edges that other tenants might be concerned with right? yeah we've talked about like e-commerce a little bit so i'm kind of going back to this asset class at least you know maybe it's 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 caught a lot of people not i don't know if it's by surprise it's just grown really quickly and you've kind of said a couple things you've said the rise in e-commerce you've said a lot of infill industrial development taking that excess land out of uh, supply and also they're maxing coverage. So they're taking even more out of supply than, is there anything else driving, um, the demand for this other than those two kind of high level things? Yeah, I think, uh, interestingly, just like the rise in industrial rents, because, you know, you're having people that used to be able to rent warehouse space to store, you know, equipment for $3 a foot, $4 a foot. And in some markets, that's now $8, $9 a foot. Mm. If you can, you know, present, may maybe they don't need it to be inside to store that, right? Yeah. So just as literally as a spread to what it costs to rent land versus building, I think that's actually created almost another avenue of, of demand. And do you have any pulse on where all the 18-wheelers are coming from? So somebody had written, they said, uh, you know, Production was down, just manufacturing 18 wheelers for a couple of years during COVID. So that was down. Yet it seems like 18 wheelers are just more and more. Is that just them coming from other parts of the country now more infill to where they're needed most? Like, where are all these trucks coming from? Do you have any pulse on that? I have less of a pulse on that. But I mean, I, I would say for every you know warehouse being built or as we add new nodes on the distribution chain, right, you just... I think there's just an increased demand for trucks. I, I can't speak to the manufacturing of trucks, but I think it's uh, should be you know apparent to, to most people seeing what's going on around the world that there's an increased need for last mile delivery and distribution. And if if somebody's building a new building, let's just say Amazon, we, every, we always have to say it's Amazon. Let's just say it's Amazon. How far from that new building do they need the product that you're offering? Does this usually have to be within like a mile, a half a mile, at least 10 miles? Like, how do y'all think about proximity? It totally depends on, on the tenant. Um, yeah. so, sometimes they, you know, I, I think you're sort of on it. They might just need to be like a mile, really like 10 minutes away, 10, 15 minutes away and whatever that equates to. Sometimes uh, we talk with tenants uh, that need to be near intermodals. And there, it, you know, same sort of concept, you know, a couple miles and yep. it's just drawing a radius, but it, it depends on the tenant. Some don't need to be that close at all. Right. Yeah. 
let's define like from your perspective, what type of markets does um, Zenith, is it Zenith? Zenith. Zenith. Yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. I haven't mentioned it yet. We're this far <laughs> in and I'm finally getting it. Uh, what is, let's just start with what is Zenith looking for? Maybe not what the whole world is looking for here, but what do y'all look for? Yeah, no, we we love uh, urban infill sites, supply constrained markets. We're also major market focused. Okay. Um, so we really love top 10, top 20 MSAs. Um, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we own a lot in Dallas, Atlanta, Miami, you know, New York, New Jersey, Chicago, Denver, Phoenix. I'm just naming markets at this point, but yeah. you know, we love the major markets. Um, and then even within those markets, we, we prefer in, infill locations because, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what business you run, you need to be close to you know, your customers and your employees. Yep. And that's a consistent theme when we talk to our tenants. Yep. And so ha having an infill location is good for that reason. It's also good for future development upside. And also we think provides downside protection to, you know, future supply to the extent there is future supply. In yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you are in New York. You come into Dallas. You made a huge splash in Dallas. We know a lot of uh, probably the same brokers. Like, can you just walk me through? Maybe this is more of a personal side of the the podcast, but like, how do y'all work your way into a new market? You started this eighteen months ago. You raised a boatload of money. You just named twenty cities that you're in. Like, what do you go through to meet brokers, see the market, make sure you're making good investments? Like, what's kind of your process? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And it's funny because we're based in, in Brooklyn, our office is in Dumbo, but in, in many ways, like the origin story of our uh, portfolio starts in Dallas. Uh, we actually invested in, in Dallas prior to the outside storage. So we own some sites in some neighborhoods you might recognize like Bishop Arts and oh, Design yeah. District and Deep Ellum. <laughs> and so we had some existing relationships here, which helped a lot. So when we were standing up the the platform there was a you know we had some credibility in the market already uh with certain brokers and so what we learned in, in dallas was you gotta you know really get in there and and learn the you know the zoning for sure uh you know we came down here a lot met with the brokers um and then sort of you learn to price the market and that's sort of the first step is just understanding where pricing is um and then we were able to, once we got comfortable with where pricing was and where we thought we could rent sites, uh, then we felt comfortable to transact. And then we were able to transact pretty quickly. We acquired, a, you know, I think 13 sites uh, in the last, you know, 18 months. Every Dallas. time I pick up the Dallas <laughs> Business Journal, it's Zenith has acquired another damn site. <laughs> I think you've acquired all of them. We, we bought a lot. Uh, we own about 200 acres actually in, in the DFW area. Yeah. Okay, we've said infill, but can you be more specific? Are you trying to be next to um, certain tenants, the airport, highways, rail, all the above? Like where within the infill now do you like to be? You sort of touched on it all. Um, I would also add, we, we have sort of a metric. We look at population density on five miles and it's just sort of a good shorthand for like where you are in a metro. Yeah. It sort of tightens it up a little bit. Uh, we will sometimes go a little bit further out on a metro if you're near what we would call like critical infrastructure. So an intermodal or a port, you know, Dallas is sort of an inland port. So it would be intermodals or, you know, airports here. Yeah. But, you know, in a coastal market, it would be, yeah, how close you are to the port. And sometimes that port can be a little bit further outside of the city. 
Yeah. So that that's just how we think about it. Are a lot of these sites in floodplains? And like, do you care about that? Also a good question. Yes, uh, a lot of them are. Okay. Um, and we do care about it. Um, it depends, though, right? Sometimes, you know, if you're, you can store things outside in, in the floodplain, so it just may not be buildable. So it depends, uh, but we, we do prefer not not to buy things in, in the floodplain if, if we can't. <laughs> well, that's kind of goes to my next quote. Like, okay, when I hear 200 acres and I know where some of your sites are, I, 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 I tell our team all the time, I'm like, they're like, we own this many square feet. I'm like, how many acres do we also own? Because my next question is going to get into covered land plays and things of that nature. Like, I understand you can buy land, you can lease it out. You know, people buy farmland on the outskirts of town for generations and just kind of wait for the path of growth. What are the future of these sites? Have y'all thought much about it? Is it just operate these things, um, you know, forever? Or do do sites like this become developable down the road? Like, what is what's the future value of these? That's another thing we, we like about the space. I think we underwrite all of these sites as our base case that they'll operate as iOS indefinitely yeah. into the future. And we have to feel comfortable about that. So that also gets back to you know buying good infill locations. We have to feel like there'll always be demand to rent this land as iOS site. Yeah. So that's first step. And then second step, of course, we do think about development potential. Some of our sites, I think today are actually pretty good development sites. We've competed with, sometimes lost, sometimes won against you know some of the biggest developers, you know industrial developers in the country. Right. Um, you know, one of the first sites we bought in Dallas, we were competing against the who's who uh, of groups, and you know they wanted to you know build a couple hundred thousand square foot warehouse on the site, um, and we were fine with just you know renting it out and in the future considering that development. So there's always like a a second play possible there might be a second bite at the apple yeah. yeah not on all of these sites right but on a significant minority of them when you think about scale owning 13 sites in a market like dfw are there are there advantages that you now have not just knowing the market i understand that part but from a pure operation standpoint like what what advantages does zenith have now that y'all have scale in these markets that you're in that maybe a mom and pop iOS open or iOS owner would not have. Yeah, no, it, it was definitely part of our original thesis. And I think it's sort of playing out where you can definitely get network effects in these markets where we'll have a tenant that, you know, it's like, I can't really pay this rent here. And we said, okay, well, we actually have an availability, you know, a little bit further out at a lower price point. Would you take that land? You know, so we've definitely seen that that's happened a couple times already. In yeah. yeah. And the market is like you said, it's not on CoStar. It's like it's kind of the market is in the like the broker world and y'all's world. Yes. <laughs> here, here. Yeah. If you're not if you're just listening to this on uh, audio, he smiled really big there, which is why I laughed. Uh, 2022, we went into tw we ended 2021. The world was just going bananas. Uh, 2022. Um, we headed back to reality and we're still on that path back to what I guess we could call reality. Can you just speak to like the market? What's going on in the market right now? I think a lot of what I'm going to say is probably very similar in, in your space. So uh, we've seen, you know, for us, the canary in the coal mine would be leasing demand, right? Yeah. And leasing interest. To date, we've seen no change, no change. 
nothing's changed on that front. I, yeah. I think our expectation is at some point it will or it might. And we're certainly preparing for that to happen. Yeah. Um, it hasn't yet. Um, but maybe that's 2023 where, you know, tenant demand softens. So from a leasing perspective, still very strong, still leasing outside, still still achieving our, our underwriting, hitting our rents. Um, but uh, definitely from, a, as you know, from the capital markets, investment sales side, it's, it's a different world for sure. It's very difficult, uh, you know, to, to tell someone, hey, your site's worth 20% less than it was eight months ago. Yeah. And so that just, you know, naturally as a consequence, it's a little bit harder to get deals done. Yeah. Um, and you'd kind of said the capital markets kind of, uh, like are, it's just like it is everywhere. Lenders just kind of quiet right now. No, I think there's still, there's still a lot of, you know, appetite there. It's just, you know, it's, it's just more expensive. And, uh, you know, I think there's definitely more of a desire for, you know, in place cash flow and, uh, you know, sort of that DSCR test. Right. So we're seeing the same thing. Um, I think that you're seeing, I think this is, this has been a general consensus. Like leasing activity is is good. It's tale of two worlds right now in this market. There's leasing activity, which remains strong and then capital markets, which are wonky. And that's pretty much across the board, no matter where you're at. Um, as y'all look into 2023, is there anything as this, uh, strategy has evolved that gives you a different out? Like I'm assuming there's a lot that you've learned. Um, I'm not asking you for your secret sauce. It's more like, how do you, how are you guys approaching 2023? Like we're ready to buy. Yeah, hundred percent. We have learned a lot. Um, I think one thing that we're looking forward to, uh, this year is sort of, let's call it like a year or two ago, stabilized, really great assets. We'll call them core iOS oh, assets. Yeah. They do exist. Oh yeah. You know what they look like. And for me, I think they're sexy. They're like 20 acres of paved <laughs> yard right by the airport, all filled with FedEx trailers. Mm. To me, that's like, I mean, that's, that's the best. Yep. I, I'll point them out on the way to the highway to my <laughs> wife. And she's like, you're a child. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Um, so from our perspective, you know, those were trading at four and a half, five caps, you know, 18 months ago. So we think, and we weren't really playing in that space because we didn't really see a way, a way to make money. We think there might be some opportunities to buy those things at more attractive cap rates in great markets. So that's definitely one thing we're looking at. Um, you know, we're privileged because of our position to have a couple hundred million dollars of, of dry powder to put to work and we're able to buy all cash. So. Um, you know, I think we're actually pretty excited about what 2023 can, can bring in terms of opportunities. So, yeah. Are there any like major, uh, metros, um, that y'all aren't going to play in? There's some metros that we, we would buy in, but you just have to be more selective. Right. Yeah. So sometimes for different reasons, actually. So, uh, you know, Houston is an interesting market we own in Houston, but when we talk about supply constrained, right, that's a little less supply constrained yeah. as a market. And then there's markets where there's more political risks. So, uh, you know, LA is a market that's a great market, super infill, ton of demand, uh, but you just have to be careful on, on, where, on where you're buying there. So I don't think there's any markets that we're not interested in. There's just markets that you just have to approach with the right nuance. Yeah, you kind of said it. I mean, when I think of like a California market or maybe New York or, like the environmental aspect, I'm like, man, I, I, on one end, it creates probably an amazing moat for the iOS that does exist. But as you think about the difference between buying in Dallas versus LA, 
how do you get comfortable with something in LA versus Dallas? You know, it's less supply constrained in Dallas. Yeah. Um, so that that's a factor. It's easier to, to buy. I, you know, that there's pluses to both, though. I mean, yeah. we, we do own a site in L.A. Um, and it's really amazing, irreplaceable zoning. And so when we talk about increasing demand and decreasing supply, that's like a poster child of it. So in a way that that site, uh, you know, I'm not sure that there is a site in DFW actually that has the same sort of discrete supply demand imbalance. But at the same time, it's maybe easier to, to transact here. So it's sort of plus and minus. And is it the same tenants across all markets? Yes, but there is nuance within the market, right? So if you're in a port market, it's going to be a little more container storage. Yeah. If, uh, you know, our site in Houston, uh, lay down yard, oil and gas, right? So what's a lay down yard? So uh, <laughs> a lay down yard is where, uh, you know, you have all these pipes, um, you know, that you use for you know, natural gas. And oftentimes, if they need to be serviced or repaired or whatever, they have to live somewhere. Mm. And, uh, you know, they have these massive lay down yards in Houston, a ton in you know, Midland, Odessa. But we, you know, uh, we focus, I would say, more on sites to get back to you know sites that we really we really like sites that have the most optionality and types of tenants. So we love sites that you know, bring the deepest bench of potential tenants. We think that just gives us downside optionality. So we have a site right now where, just to give you a flavor of the types of tenants that, you know, look at these things. Right now we have interest from a trailer leasing company. We also have interest from a, a municipal use uh, municipality to, to store uh, like as an impound lot. We also have interest from a, a roofing company right now on the same site. And, you know, if you think about it, these are all three very discreet sort of you know businesses and I, I think that's actually something we, we really like about the space and we we spend a lot of time curating our our tenant mix to be as diverse as possible we don't want too much exposure to one industry in theory if you had uh let's just say the site was large enough and it was 30 acres you just mentioned three sites like are there are there certain businesses that don't go well together like could you put all three of those on a site or it's like now you can't have a roofer next to a municipality or it depends but uh, short answer is, uh, yeah, you can put them together. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, that they're they're running, uh, you know, they're heavy industrial users. I, I don't think they mind too much that, uh, you know, they have trailers next door. And is every market price per acre per month? Is that how all the pricing? Like, how do how are these things leased market to market? Totally different. Okay, it's part of the fun. Okay, like I, we are in the wild west. Yeah, baby. I, I've gotten very good at converting acres to square foot. Uh, west coast is a uh, per square foot per month. Uh, I would say a lot of the country is per acre per month. Yeah, and then some are per per square foot per year. So um, I guess there's not too many that are per acre per year. So that's the one that's missing. But it's it's the whole menu. Also, some people call them yards. Some call them outside storage. What do it's we? What do you fair. call them? What's your preferred? It depends who I'm talking to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're a man of the people. <laughs> is it usable square footage versus like, how do they, like, if I'm looking at 30 yards, I know there are 30 acres, the same 30 acres in the same 30 acres across the country. Like, how do people determine what they're leasing? Yeah. So definitely there's sort of a, you know, you can have a gross acreage and a usable acreage. Okay. Um, not too much science behind that. It's, and and how's it quoted <laughs> typically, like gross or net? Yeah, I think it's you, you, you would rent on the usable. 
right? Okay. If there's some trees, you know, yeah. you're not gonna charge your tenant for that. I mean, I guess you could, but we don't. <laughs> but and you probably in those situations can't cut down the trees. You might be able to, you yeah. know, but is it worth the effort? Yeah. So yeah, so, sometimes you can, and we have sites like that where you know the deal works with the usable, but there's ability to expand the site as well. I kind of should have asked this probably earlier. I mean, we kind of already talked about it, but the, it's one thing to go, okay, rents are here. They should be here. That's a value add. How else do you add value to these? Like what are things that are value add drivers that, um, you know, I can tell you in, in industrial, um, we can paint buildings, we can fix roofs, HVACs, we can get spaces ready that have been, you know, old and decrepit. We can hire a better leasing team. I mean, what, all the above, like what, as it relates to outdoor storage, like what are other things that you can do that drive value to these things? You know, you, you sort of touched on them. I, I think really tenants do care about security. So, you know, beefing up security is important. Uh, yeah, lighting, uh, you know, the quality of the the finish, you know, the, the crushed rock or asphalting a site, you can sometimes drive rents there. You know, maybe it can be a 25% premium. I'm just making that up. Yeah. They're like asphalt versus crushed rock. Then again, sometimes I actually don't care at all between the difference of those two. And it, it and sometimes it doesn't make sense to spec that extra work right. if you're not actually going to get paid for it. So, um, you know, it sort of depends. We we try to let the tenants tell us what they want, and then you know we will put you know their desires, and you know, it's almost like a menu. We're like, yeah, we can do this, but. It might cost you more in rent. Okay, I'm gonna get like granular here for a little bit. Okay. You buy a deal. If you take a, a site, are all these 100% occupied? And sometimes do the tenants even know if it's 100% occupied? For example, you buy a piece of dirt, there's a couple tenants. I know who some of these owners are. They're, they, you know, they just own some, some land, they lease to their buddies. Like if you buy a site with two tenants, is it ever, is it 50 50 or like do they know like oh that 10 acres over there is not for you like you can't touch that am i asking this correctly it's like when you have suites in a building you kind of know oh, where everybody is yes on land is it very defined like this is your spot 100 percent. yeah yeah for sure okay we, we, we try to do that yeah so the easy question are you buying sites that have vacancy and i'm assuming not that doesn't mean like you're buying zero percent or a hundred percent occupied like are you ever buying something that's 60 percent occupied yeah. Okay. Yeah. We we yeah we, we we will. At the moment, we're sort of shying away from buying you know vac fully vacant sites, but right. definitely we're fine you know buying some vacancy. Yeah. Okay. So the then the granular part goes if if there's a tenant already on site that's been there, let's say ten years, they don't want to leave. I know in when you own buildings, you can go to them and say like, hey, we want you to renew your lease, and we're gonna like put granite in the the bathroom for you and, and everything what how does that work with your type of tenant because they can't really afford i'm assuming to move all their shit off site while y'all pave it all and make it nice for six months and then move it all back so like how do you do capex or ti work on an existing tenant oh yeah well we we typically wouldn't do that while they're there okay yeah we yeah that's, so I guess that's the short answer that's the short answer <laughs> this is about as simple of an asset class as it gets okay then on the new sites uh, the vacant sites, which is, this is maybe more applicable now. I feel like I've been talking in a circle for the last two minutes, trying to get this out again in a typical building, you have a TI package. 
how do y'all think about like what you can offer the market? Is it is it listed as a as a price breaker, price per foot plus we're willing to do X, or do you just wait to hear what the tenant needs and then underwrite that deal? We typically do have some sort of TI allowance that, that comes with it. Um, you know, it, it depends on, on what the tenant wants. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we sort of come up with a base case, you know, hey, maybe we need to repair the fencing here. We need to, you know, uh, update the lighting. And because we've done it enough times, we can sort of price that out and we, we carry that. Uh, but yeah, so when we when we come up with the rent that we're asking, I, I think in the back of our heads, we're, we're all we're thinking that, you know, also with that work yeah, coming yeah. with it. You've mentioned the uh, security like two or three times. Are we talking cameras or we what what is what what does security mean on these sites? Yeah. Um, fencing, first of all. OK, right. It just needs to be physically secured. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, depending on, you know, the importance of the goods being stored there in the business, you can add on. I'd say we do have cameras at most all of our sites that we've installed. That's a very low cost item, though, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then as you go up the chain, you know, full-time security guard, which is a little more expensive. But yeah, no matter what, the first concern of, of any tenant is just security. What's the craziest use that you have on the site? <laughs> I'd have to think <laughs> about it. Define crazy. We just have all sorts of like interesting businesses that you didn't, like I wouldn't have known yeah. existed. Uh, so maybe a different answer, but you know, we had a site in, uh, actually in Dallas where the tenant was a, a tire shredder and as his whole business was shredding tires and there's like a massive, it's like, I didn't even know, like a 30 foot high, like pile of, of shredded tires. And I, I have no clue the business of that, but I just, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And we, we, uh, he left the site since then, but. Yeah, this all sorts of you know weird stuff, and and one of our sites, uh, uh, a municipal user wanted to do snow storage. So, oh, wow. so you can guess it's a northern city, but like yeah. you literally to store snow because when they shovel or they you know they sweep the streets, yeah, snow some of that snow's got to go somewhere. Got to go somewhere, <laughs> man. Yeah, that's one of the things uh, I think is interesting about what you do, and again, it's similar to kind of what we do is you really get to see the back side of the, the backbone of America on these assets. These are not the tenants that are on the front page of, you know, the fancy magazines, but they are the people that kind of make the world run. And I guarantee you, if we talk to that guy, like, why do you shred tires? He'd show us his PL and we'd be like, I get why you shred tires. I'm going to tell my kid to grow up to be a tire shredder. <laughs> uh, is there any tenants that you won't take? Are they're, they're too environmentally destructive or? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There's some like really intensive uses that we would shy away from, sort of like metal, you know, scrap metal guys. Um, yeah, really sort of intensive uses, I think. And so where do they go? You know, like where do the people that y'all won't take end up? <laughs> a lot of them are like owner users. I don't know. They they exist. They find their place to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. They, they, they find do. somewhere to be some non-institutional owner, which most of the owners are in the space. They don't really care about the environmental damage at the site or their neighbors they're like yeah you know we'll at least see this this land so yeah but i'm sure they actually don't find it's not too hard you know? yeah all right this has been a super interesting conversation it's something that rides very close to what we do on a day-to-day -day. uh we've never done it we, we we've 
we're sticking with buildings. Oh, I will say one question as I'm as I'm winding this up. Is there really any depreciation? I guess that's it's only whatever buildings and capex remain on top. Is there any advantages to owning this stuff outside of just owning it? Well, a lot of them do have buildings. You can depreciate the buildings. But um, yeah, if there's no building, then yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. But yeah, that's okay. true. I guess that's a downside. All right, man. This has been awesome. Um, you all have money to deploy. You're looking to get into new markets. There's a lot of people on this podcast that are brokers, deal doers that would probably love to uh, touch base. How can they get in touch with your company or, or you know, send you a deal? Totally. Uh, you can go to zenithios.com. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. The DMs are open. We'd love to, to do business with, with everyone this year. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, Alex, thanks again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.